Thank you for tuning in to the Bonsai Wire podcast. For this episode, we were hoping to get recorded, edited, and sent out before the big storm hit most of the country. We got it recorded, but ultimately we lost power for a week, so we're just now getting around to editing and sending it out. I hope everyone is safe and hope you enjoy. Well, I like John's idea to talk about something uh, timely like repotting. I don't know if you I all... Think this is great. I don't know if you all have started yet. I'm definitely uh, getting late to be repotting at this point. So are we, we're, we're waiting for a snowstorm coming tomorrow. <laughs> and uh, as uh, in years past, we've, uh, we've just tried to minimize the things that we absolutely have to protect when things get kind of cold to, to the amount of available protection space. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. That sounds about right. But um, yeah. I've had actually more challenges dealing with repotting, or at least more questions have come up with repotting this year than in a lot of years. Usually I think of it as the slog that you have to get that's through. That's good. I well, think that's it, really good because repotting is, is just sort of the foundation, right? Well, repotting's always been one of my favorite things and it's just always this mountain, big mountain of work. But this year I'm finding more questions huh. are coming up about um, degree or extent, how much soil should I remove from that mm. old tree? What exact mix should I use? Cause I use kind of custom mixes for almost every tree I repot in the garden. And I'm, and wow. I'm curious, like, <laughs> do you guys have a much more streamlined approach to that? I used to, but now I do different things for different. We're kind of knuckleheaded. No, we, we just do two mixes really. <laughs> well, no. really for uh, the whole garden. No, no, no. Uh, for, for trees in, in bonsai pots, yes, but for the back 40, it, it's, a, it's a third mix with some organic in it. Um, Boy, yeah, yeah still easy. only three, only three mixes instead of right. one per tree. Right, right. <laughs> pretty, pretty dumb. Um, uh, in, the, in the back 40 for the um, things that are sort of young and on the way to find out, um, uh, it's uh, a fair bit of bark and uh, steer manure, which gives sort of a slow release over two to three years. Uh, e even though we're still fertilizing, it gives sort of that background fertilizer that's kind of nice. And what what are we doing now, John? Is it it's, it's something like eighty percent pumice, and then the rest uh, right. that uh, bark steer mix, mm -hmm. composted um, and, bark steer, mm -hmm. and we'll even grow conifers in that. Um, but um, you, you just get a, a bigger, bolder uh, growth response um, from, uh, from using organics. So we, we do that. I think it gives a little bit of an advantage. <laughs> I tried that mix for pines and found it challenging to keep them green when there's a lot of pumice. I, I've tried it many different ways and high pumice, low, no akadama, and I don't care what else. It works for a year or two. And then all of a sudden, I just can't keep pines green after that doesn't matter how much mm. fertilizer interesting mm. so i'll have to keep trying but this time i'm trying the opposite 100 percent lava on the pines we'll see how that goes whoa that's very mineral yeah that might work there's a lot of iron in there <laughs> i have some awesome. choju bite in it and they already look a little different than i expected so i'll be curious how that goes too are you using a red lava or a black lava uh, red lava and i rinsed it in water once that's, so that's I figure, wise. I know it's possible for it to work. I just need to figure out what the recipe is going to be. Yeah. yeah. Well, so what about your other two bonsai pot mixes? So whether it's a young tree or an old tree, as long as it's in a bonsai pot, it gets the same mix? Pretty much. Yeah. We uh, we sort of divided into roughly uh, deciduous and, and conifer, though some of the conifers, um, such as um, 
uh, spruce and hemlock that like a lot of water uh, will throw into the deciduous mix, which is sort of a 50-50 akadama pumice mix. Uh, and then the conifer is just one third akadama and the rest is pumice. Um, I'm pretty sure I would have slightly greener, you know, to your point, Jonas, <laughs> would have slightly uh -huh. greener pines if I used more, more akadama, but we're, we're trying to figure out a way <laughs> to keep our akadama use kind of low. Um, uh, so, so anyway, we've been doing that for years. I, um, my, my teacher Suzuki in, in Japan, we had a lot of deciduous trees for a Japanese master who isn't really specializing in deciduous. He had quite a few, um, maybe 20% of the garden, um, uh, was deciduous and he didn't use any lava at all, uh, the scoria. And I, I think, you know, given what Joe Harris has found that there was a, um, and I think even Ryan recently, um, kind of an overabundance of boron, which is what Ryan assumed, I think, uh, was his problem, probably rightly, because Joe Harris had a lab uh, that found a, a level of toxicity that was pretty scary. Was that yeah. the black? I can't even remember. Was it the black lava? Um, I think that was the red. The red. Oh, was it the red? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you're washing, Jonas, might be a good idea. Um, but yeah well what's uh, funny is if there's toxic boron in it the people have been using red yeah. lava for decades yeah. and no one's seen even a... the start of a symptom and so right. it just seems right. really weird that i think it's a I, I just would love to know what's of... going on yeah <laughs> yeah it's probably just where they're getting a, a particular batch um yeah in the mountains um and i know they do change mm -hmm. batch to batch big time the the color the shape the density right. the weight even pumice the weight can change right. radically i just learned this this year from mm -hmm when they open up a new vein of pumice, the rock comes out way, way heavier. Uh, it's more dense. And then as they get deeper and deeper in, it gets lighter and lighter. And mm -hmm. so I just from batch to batch, uh, there can be surprise, like almost double the density in the particles. Wow. So maybe we were using sort of on the surface, uh, new, new vein pumice in Japan. I was also surprised how heavy the pumice was there. Uh, uh, was that the normal Hugo that you used? Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Which usually is fairly light mm -hmm. in Japan. I, I thought it was heavier than what we're using here, but yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. There's it, it definitely an awful lot of variability. Even scoria. I mean, there's some stuff that, frankly, feels like pumice, uh, uh -huh. but it's red or black. Um, so some of the lavas can be really. Can, it can also be really heavy, like rock Lava, heavy, very, very, yeah. <laughs> very solid. Um, yeah. Well, I'm curious. So, so Jonas, what, uh, like, so basically what are your mixes, you know, what are, what, what kind of things are the variables in your, <laughs> your mixes? Um, I go, mixes. yeah, I go for deciduous, <laughs> I go up to 80% Akadama and I'd probably start at around 30%. I find the really young trees, I tend to use less Akadama and the more refined trees, more Akadama up to probably 60 to 80% in conifers, but usually more around 50, 60%. Um, but yeah, definitely up to 80% for the deciduous. And it's funny, I do notice fairly big differences. I'll also do possibly less Akadama with sicker trees and things that are less healthy. Yeah. Like if I want to yeah, jumpstart a tree, I'll cut down the Akadama, try to hit it more like 30%. Mm. Mm -hmm. But it's like, you know, growing up using, in bonsai at least, growing, uh, using the 
30, 30, 30 mix, you know, or the one, one, one pumice, Akadama and lava. I think that is an <laughs> absolutely, it's a fantastic mix for middle stage mm. development, which is most bonsai in America, which is I think why so right. many people have right. so much success with it. Right. Good for young trees, good for getting so, so healthy trees out of really horrible soil. And it just really jump starts them. But mm -hmm. when I want the smallest inner nodes and I want to water less frequency, I want more Akadama and or smaller particles so I can get that more refined growth in there. Mm -hmm. That's the idea, whether or not that's happening. We'll see. No, I think, I, th <laughs> I, mean, I mean, that's a lot closer to what the Japanese do. They're using 70% Akadama and then the rest is uh, pumice lava mix usually. Um, and it, it, it makes total sense to me. And, you know, having said that we, we only use three mixes is not really true. We'll, 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 we'll futz according to what, uh, what uh -huh. we're working with. And we definitely use uh, more pumice with trees that are weaker, that have had mm -hmm. uh, root issues or um, just need a little bit of a, a burst of, uh, of gas. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's funny. Air is really all it takes to do that. A little bit of extra yeah. pumice and it just seems to make things healthy. Um, right, right. Not that you all have a ton of them probably, but I noticed California live oak can deal with a ton of pumice. They love it. Uh, and mm. redwood native to the same place and they love lots and lots of Akadama. Right, yeah, right. They want lots of water. They dry out like crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of like a beach. <laughs> <laughs> but the other uh, actually so actually on the topic of soil mixes i'm curious like andrew when you travel do you recommend super simple mixes for everyone you're working with or do you find that people have based on what's available kind of different approaches to putting it together i, I think most of the time i recommend super simple mixes um, nice. just a 50 50 mix akadama pumice for deciduous and uh one third Akadama, two-thirds pumice, maybe a handful of lava for um, uh -huh. the, the conifers. Um, but what I'm I'm really recommending to people is is with young trees, don't use Akadama. Um, yeah. Try and find a substitute like pumice or perlite to to really save save cost on the bags because we're washing the soil away so much more, and it just doesn't make sense. What around the country you're finding are the best alternatives for people that don't have scoria or pumice readily available? Perlite, I think, is the best one. Perlite, you can get pretty much anywhere. Uh, I've noticed the, the the tricky thing with perlite is getting a finding a larger particle, so not yeah. just the the dust that you you typically see if you go to Home Depot and look for perlite. Yeah. Um, had, has anyone seen good results with either diatomaceous earth or expanded shales or any of those Midwest alternatives that are so common? I haven't. Um, oh, we, haven't. Um, we just yeah. jumped right into the soil controversy, huh? I we were yeah, we did. On it. <laughs> <laughs> I have seen some uh, very minimal root systems in expanded shale. Uh -huh. um, I, I've had very little uh, experience years ago when I was toying around with all kinds of different uh, media. I did try diatomaceous earth, and what I had broke, broke down. Um, into something that roots were okay with, but they didn't seem all that excited about it. Um, I've heard that there's some that holds together or breaks down a little slower, which tends to tends to assist, I think, uh, a root colonization, um, which then can ramify into something that's a little more broken down uh, later after a few years. So that would that would be ideal if that uh, if that's out there. But I, I didn't explore it enough. How about how about you? Uh, did, have you explored? You know, I have. 
we don't just have a lot of those soils that I keep hearing about all over the rest of the country. And so mm. I've experimented more with other things. Um, I'd actually recommend uh, decomposed granite before I would recommend a lot of the weird particles that do odd things That's with how good. much moisture they do or don't hold because um, mm -hmm. down in Shikoku, they use 100% what's it very yeah. close to decomposed yeah. granite and that's what the pine growers yeah. use it's what's in the wow. ground um yep. and even mm -hmm. in the bonsai pots like you're controlling moisture retention through particle size at that point but it's mm -hmm. not giving you any weird minerals it's not doing yeah. anything unpredictable mm -hmm. with the retention since there's so little micro porosity it's but right. it, it works right. just fine yeah if you sift it well and you choose yeah. your size right you can do pretty well i think particularly with conifers that's that's a that's, that's not a bad starting place. Yeah. Yeah. Well, deciduous would be interesting because you'd need to go small enough to retain the water. I've not experimented with high amounts of that with deciduous. That'd be interesting, yeah. but it would uh, be. <laughs> but for conifers, yeah, if you have a 316th, quarter inch, 516th, I think that'd be really easy to yeah. use. And that's yeah. available in a lot of places. Maybe if you're growing a maple in the Ho National Rainforest or something, it would work great. Yeah. <laughs> But what's funny is if you had decomposed granite and you put a little perlite in, it would probably have the, uh, Ooh, that, that's the a, recipe that's idea. to uh, do really well. And you'd get so much stronger lifting those pots all the time. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and that's a, it's both a wonderful thing about perlite and, you know, the one negative that you could, I, I love it, especially if you're growing a young plant in a nursery pot or something like that. Perlite is great. Um, yeah. The problem is it floats away. Um, but um uh, you know, you just put something else on top of it and hold it down. Uh, Sagnamoss or something like that can work. Now, <clears throat> Jonas, how much, uh, how much would you say you're recommending uh, decomposed granite because you sell tools? Like, is that, is there a correlation <laughs> between tool selling? And <laughs> oh, I, I would just keep the lava at that point, And I don't use much lava yeah. myself in general. Lava will do it. That'll erode your tools to nubs. Yeah. I would just love to hear it's, it's, it's really interesting how popular the lava pumice mix got because I've yet to see any evidence that leaving out one or the other makes a big measurable difference. I've done, uh, you know, two thirds lava, one third Akadama, and we've all done two thirds pumice for, you know, over a decade. And I have just not seen big difference other than uh, jagged uh, scissor blades and heavier mm -hmm. pots. Mm -hmm. I know they have different moisture retaining <laughs> capabilities, but I have not yet seen with proper watering trees exhibit different characteristics as a result of leaving one or the other out. Interesting. So I always tell people, you know, aim for your target percentage of Akadama and yeah, 30 to 50 are really safe targets. And so uh, I do, have you guys been exposed to any data when you're doing a mix? You know, I've, I've actually seen, um, I have a client in Dallas, Texas, and I was actually just there and um, we, we, we were repotting, you know, the last few years, we were repotting all these deciduous trees that were in the, the standard boom mix, uh -huh. uh, maybe with just a little bit of lava or extra lava in them. And they just, you know, they were in these, these containers for four or five years and I'd pull them out and there'd be like no roots there. Um, and we wow. experimented putting them in. Um, either pure pumice or, or just 50-50 mix. Mm -hmm. and, and within one year, they had better roots than the, the whole five years that um, they were in the pots previously. So I, I've seen a lot, and not just with that Dallas client, but when, when we take the lava away, particularly with deciduous trees, I see you know much, much, much better root growth. I'm really curious about this because I, I've wondered at length whether this is why Suzuki did not use lava 
uh, because he had so many deciduous trees in, in the garden, uh, whereas other Japanese masters were using some lava. I, I have heard storylines. I've never seen studies, but I would love to see them if uh, there's too much minerality in lava for deciduous, whether that's a problem. But you were finding low root growth, Andrew, even with some conifers then? Even with, with, even with black pines. And, really? and it could have just been he had a bad lava source. Um, well, that's but, what I'm curious about, whether we're going to play Russian yeah. roulette with our lava. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Sure but <laughs> yeah, I mean, we put stuff in pure pumice, we put stuff in 50-50, and, right. and the roots just totally exploded. Same containers, you know, same fertilizing regimen, all of that. But, but just I'm also curious about the watering, because I know that they have very different moisture retentive capabilities. And if you use different mixes mm -hmm. and water the same, that can be death to the mm -hmm. roots. And so... Um, a lot of times lava holds way, way more moisture than pumice. And so if you're watering them the same, you're going to be drowning the things in lava and they're not going to grow at all. That's definitely the number one takeaway. I used to start uh, batches of pines where I would use 10 different mixes. And if I watered them the same, you're forcing the results mm -hmm. of the study based on bad watering. The hard thing is using 10 different mm -hmm. soils and watering appropriately 10 <coughs> different ways. Right. So. <laughs> In addition to potential toxicity, I'd be curious about mm. uh, what the watering difference is. Because I know that garden I went to in Japan where the guy uses 100% lava for all of his trees, and that's the appropriate size lava. He has deciduous and conifers in nothing but 100% lava the entire lives. And having spoken with people who've repotted these trees in Japan, they're like, oh my God, please start using this at home. The roots are fantastic. Mm. <laughs> that was the feedback I got. So it's not necessarily yeah. an inherent thing to lava, but I am also not going to say I know what the differences are that are going to make it work better or worse in different cases. But between uh, toxic dust, if that's a thing, and uh, water, those are mm. the ones I'm most curious about. Mm. But that's good to hear, Andrew. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. Citizen science experiments. We need a few of them yeah. <laughs> regarding these issues. Yeah. So I was, uh, I had in my notes, I was curious to, to hear everybody's thoughts about what, what clues I'm moving on to a slightly different repotting topic here of uh, repotting timing. When do we, when do we repot something? And uh, in, in, Ooh, in my one. view, it's, it's, you know, it's multiple clues. Uh, I hate calendars. I, I think they, they're useless, you know, repot your pines every four years, repot your deciduous trees in the spring of every third year. You know, they, those are useful guidelines, but they really don't work in, in, uh, in usual life um, uh, because we have to look at the health of the tree. We have to look at if there's a possible root issue. Uh, many people, you know, there's one other little clue that I think we tend to miss, which is internode length. If you have an azalea or something like that, internode length is one of the, one of the best clues. Um, bad compacted waterlogged soils, you know, reading these signs um, rather than the calendar, I think is really, really helpful. And the, the main tool that we use in, uh, in our backyard is just a, a sharpened chopstick and you poke it into the soil near the pot lip. So not in the, the core, which is probably always going to be tight, but in the area that you're removing and replacing every few years to see if that is tight. Um, the tricky thing I find is that I have a very poor memory for how a tree was draining the year, the summer before when we were watering a lot, because when we're potting, we're not watering a lot. And so you're not going to like water it mm. to, to see whether, <laughs> you know, how it's draining. Right. Uh, either you have a great memory or just use a chopstick. But that's, that's sort of the main tool that, uh, that, that we use. But I'm curious what you guys uh, think about, uh, about repotting timing. Um, or but, frequency uh, in that case. Do do? Yeah, frequency. Yeah. 
Yeah, like Andrew, how do you how do you teach that one? Because I know again you're working with people, so how do you uh, go about that? Yeah, I, I do the same chopstick method that, that Michael was just talking about. I think that works great. Um, what I'm finding is lately I'm, I'm doing younger trees a lot more frequently, just uh, especially with deciduous, just so I can really splay out the roots and, yep. and, and really edit them. So I, I'm almost doing this, the seedlings and, and, you know, up to the first five or seven years, uh, I'm almost doing those every year just to really splay them out and give them a good foundation before I start leaving them alone uh, for, for longer periods of time. Um, mm. But but yeah, it's, it's a tricky thing to teach. I think, you know, when I was a bonsai hobbyist, I, I think looking back, I repotted things way too frequently. Yeah. Um, and after after doing the, mm -hmm. the, the apprenticeship and, and doing this professionally, now I'm, I'm leaving things in the pots a lot longer, uh, particularly even, you know, species that are really strong, like a trident, leaving them an extra year or two um, to really help slow them down and, and, and get you know, small internodes, um, almost to the reverse of what Michael was saying, where, you know, while that can be a clue, it can also be a tool to, to use to slow down a plant. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, I, I find that generally it's, it's, it's longer in between them than we think for, for repotting times. And based on, I think, how other people are teaching this in general, I have, I mean, I almost don't know that I have an example of people who on average don't repot too frequently. It's pretty much the default is a lot of people I know repot every year. I'll never understand that. And, uh, and mm -hmm. I agree about the calendars. It just, it's funny. It's been 10, 15, maybe 20 years since it's occurred to me to even take into consideration when a tree was last repotted because it just, <laughs> the health of the tree, yeah, the character of the matter. soil, all of that is really what matters. Right. Healthy trees, you know, can compact to the point where you can't penetrate with water very well two years sooner than what a calendar might tell you to repot. And then uh, a weak tree, a disease tree is moving so slowly that it can be two or three years longer than what yeah. a calendar might tell you what to do. So that's where this chopstick and what, what Andrew is talking about, you know, you can use your repotting schedule timing uh, as a tool uh, yeah. to slow things down or conversely to speed things up if it's, if it's uh, uh, weakened to the point. I think it's one, one of the problems we have with very old mature bonsai is that the twigs can start to get so thin that our vascular pathways are super, super minimal. Um, and at that point, uh, we wanna speed it up just a little bit or we're gonna start losing some twiggage. Um, and that's where your repotting schedule for a few cycles might be a little bit closer to, to introduce a little bit of youth again. Um, that's one of the interesting things about trees. You know, they, it's true that they they have a sort of a genetic ability to reach certain ages, but we kind of they're, they're also kind of timeless in a way, and we can bring them back to youth in a way that yeah. uh, that you and I can't. <laughs> 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 and repotting is one way to do it. The schedule. And it's funny. I think so many trees in the country are on the upward trajectory in terms of they're still base developing basic uh, primary and secondary branching, and they're we're not really right. worried about getting them too refined, but I know you found this and I found mm -hmm. this where 
it doesn't take that many years once you get the density you're looking for where you actually have to start pruning more so you can get a better response. You have to pot more frequently right. to wake them up a little bit. And so more and more, my most refined trees, I'm having yeah. more trouble waking them up and reinvigorating them than I am mm. trying to get them super duper refined. Because mm. if we keep following the same advice that got us to where we are, those trees are going to go down, 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 right. down. And, and the advice changes. <laughs> yeah. It, it's, you, if you can point. cut back a branch on any species, <laughs> cut back one and get two, you just can't do that forever. Right. 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 You run out of space. That's right. And so it's, right. it's, that means that we have to do the hard thing, which is pay attention to the needs of that individual tree. And, uh, right. And I and think so I'm the same way going on uh, in the roots. I'm sorry. I'm just yeah. sort of relating that. I mean, you run out of space in, in, in your pot as well. And there's only so much you can ramify early and then you got to cut some away and, and, and introduce a little more space. Now, what's fun is I have found that working with the same trees for a very long period of time, you find that some, you know, the difference, you either need to pot that tree every year or every other year, and it'll make a big difference. And um, just because they're insanely vigorous and the roots grow super hard and you start to get relationships with species that might be exceptions mm -hmm. to that. And I have one tree that really does better if I like a plum, repotting it every single year helps. If I don't repot it a single year, it slows way, way down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I I, th I think a lot of the sort of early succession plants, like some people, uh, for years, decades ago, I remember hearing that you cannot grow birch in a pot, and it's not true. You can grow birch. Not at all true. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but a lot of these early succession, aspen, you know, things like that. Um, uh, they they may. I, I have a I haven't worked with them a lot, just a few times, but they feel like uh, they might be on a really different repotting cycle because they're legitimately different kind of plants. Some of them grow, you know, with runners and stuff like that, and they just have a very different. They're like communal plants, and I have a feeling that 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 is interrelated with uh, with repotting time and how we handle the repotting. But that's the future investigation for me. I'm not not sure where to, where to go with. Uh, I have no conclusions yet. Um, but that connects <laughs> to another topic I've been probably most curious about this year, which is extent in terms of how much root work to do at any given time. Yes. And, oh, and very so good point. Yes. You worked with, and oh, let alone the time, the raw timing. Like those are both topics I'd like to get to. Um, in terms of the. Uh, extent yeah. you know you and i learned yeah. with uh, boone a little bit in the early days then you learned very different approaches uh where there's the concept of what do you do when you first start working with a tree to get rid of yeah. that old soil or nursery soil or just neglected bonsai that's been really really compacted and right. i have had different approaches over the years whether conifer deciduous can you bare root the tree do you do partial bare roots do you do other mm -hmm. things and I'm finding that to be the most engaging decision I'm making on given trees because I've been acquiring a lot more developed and or neglected trees in recent years. And mm. I'm radically changing what I've been doing for the previous 20 years as a result. And I'm curious, like, I know, and I keep saying, Andrew, because I know you're working with people's mm. different collections. And so when, and I know you're, the people you work with, Michael, you've been working with them so long. I assume the soil is just amazing by now. But when you start working with trees for <laughs> the first it time, it's it's a really different ball game. And to yeah, know yeah, what you can true. do to get the best response that first year is, uh, I find that one really mm -hmm. interesting. Yeah, I, I've with most of my clients, we've been doing this kind of general practice where we're we're 
whenever they acquire a new tree, we're repotting it, whether we think it needs it or not, just to kind of see what's going on. Because we found um, we found a number of um, non-ideal things <laughs> in the in the root system that we had no idea about. Uh, we we were just repotting it like a large imported trident, and it it had you know there was like just a big pocket of air right underneath the trunk with no soil in there. Oh, and it was a trident, so it did okay. But if it was, if, if, yeah. if it was a different species, it could have been really detrimental. Um, and, yeah. and so I, I think I'm, I'm following that general practice here in my garden and, and with my clients trees too, is just whenever we get a new tree or acquire a new tree, just repotting it, just to make sure everything is is as it should be in the, it's, in the container. it's kind of yeah. it's kind of like a physical you know you go to <laughs> go to yeah, a new exactly. physician you're like okay let's just do a once over here <laughs> i hate buying trees in may because i have to wait so long before i can repot them yep <laughs> mm-hmm. i mean i'm i'm the same exact way andrew it yeah. makes such a difference and what's funny is if you have a tree that's a little bit weak, but you know the person you got the tree from, and by all appearances, it looks like it's all good soil, it's so hard for me to not repot in those cases because until you see it with your eyes, it's hard to trust that things are the way it needs to be inside. And even more so, if it's a weak tree, if you're not repotting because you mm-hmm. assume the right work has been done, right. that means the only tool you have is watering. And like, mm. that's it, you know, beyond like basic exposure stuff, it just really mm. limits what you can do to turn that tree around. Right. Yeah. Greenhouse. So yeah, they're, they're not many. Yeah. Watering. <laughs> that's about it. And <laughs> I found, um, so typically I've worked with a lot of deciduous trees where when you get a deciduous tree, you can bear root it. And so when you had that trident, Andrew, were you, did you bear root that tree? No, I've with with older plants, I've been leaving as much um, root on there as possible, assuming the soil is good. Um, I, I had some bad experiences last year where I bought some some trees that were weak, and I I was a little, a little aggressive on the the repotting and, and bare rooted a little too much, and I, I actually lost a tree. Um, but yeah, I've I've been. I, I'm learning to be a lot more cautious with with really weak old deciduous trees because I find once they really slow down and, and start um, start throwing a lot of branches and then their, their health gets compromised, I find that it's 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 a really slow arc to bring them back, uh, and you can't really rush that. That's exactly yeah. what I found last year. Is it's funny for 20 years I found it mostly okay to bare root deciduous trees. And then I did the same exact thing you just described. I bare-rooted several really old and relatively weak trees, and they do not respond well. If a tree is super healthy, it will respond to bare-rooting much, much, much better. I don't really worry about it a whole lot in most cases. But unless the tree is firing on all cylinders, I totally agree. Uh, The concept of bare-rooting an unhealthy deciduous tree is a big gamble. I have no Mm. interest in doing that ever again. Mm. Yeah, this is, um, it reminds me of a conversation I had in Japan years ago with, uh, with Suzuki. I remember him telling me that with a young plant, um, and this, this was kind of interesting, and it, it, it's not at all a contradiction of what you two said, because I've had the same experience, of course, um, which has made me very leery to, you know, to bear root uh, any deciduous tree, unless it's young, you know, and really vigorous, like you were saying, uh, Jonas. Uh, but, but one thing you said, which is another, uh, another facet 
to this thing, which I thought was really interesting. It was sort of a young versus old, how you handle a root ball. And he said, if you have a really young tree and you take off too much root, uh, you can just stall it out. It, it just has no momentum coming out in the spring. And you can cut off more on, now you're retaining, uh, uh, his assumption was that you're retaining this inner core that's full of fine roots, but you can take off about half the root mass. On the young tree, you might only take off a third. It was a really interesting conversation. And and now having my own garden for you know 15 years, I've really, I, I agree with that. That that totally makes sense to me um, to not be so aggressive with the young trees. And John, I think, has been working with so many young ones. You probably don't do an awful lot of cutting on your 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 seedlings uh, right, right. on the root system to try and retain a lot. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think same as John? Andrew. Oh, sorry. Same as Andrew. Like trying to do more frequent repottings on the young stuff just to get roots set, but not maybe not be as aggressive uh, mm -hmm. for some things. You know, one, one tip I, I learned um, this last year, um, actually from John, was the, the benefit that a heat pad can really provide. Uh -huh. um, some of the, the trees that I did bare root last year that I shouldn't have, um, I'm convinced they only survived because they were went onto a heat pad afterwards. And then that can be such a, a, a saving grace <laughs> with, with, a, with a, a tree that you repot that you're quite uncomfortable with how it went. Yeah, and I think that probably has a lot to do with our season, uh, the way our seasons work here, because we we have such a slow to start summer, yeah. where you know last week it was sixty five in the yard, and this week it's going to be forty in the yard, and next week it's going to be forty five in the yard. It's just like, you know, when is the right time to repot? Where we're we're not too late, but we're also not too early, you know. And so that's you know that has that's an interesting part of our our microclimate here, I think, but, but yeah, heat pads, I think are very useful for especially weaker trees to, to be able to get a, a, the bump of. Yeah. Roots yeah. That that, that's the start of a conversation of aftercare. I mean, how do you, yeah. uh, how do, how do you take care of your plants um, after repotting? Uh, definitely uh, protecting from frost, from freezing uh, wind. Um, I know many people protect from sun, you know, they put it in the shade and not necessarily, you know, sun, some sun is, is good because that'll, um, that'll energize uh, the top um, either to throw out a shoot if it's a deciduous tree, uh, photosynthesize if it's uh, uh, an evergreen um, and that uh, helps regrow the bottom. So to what John is saying, um, one way to really slow down a tree uh, badly is to put it into the shade right after repotting. Um, you want some warmth, you want a little bit of sun, you don't want too much of either. <laughs> a greenhouse might be a good idea if you have it. Something like that um, can help an awful lot. Uh, so um, back to the timing, uh, back to the timing thing, mm -hmm. we talked about how to tell over different years when the tree is ready but when do you tell in the given year where you've decided that this yeah. is the year to repot what are the what are the telltale signs that now is the time to repot mm -hmm. there's been a lot of talk about this i've heard from other people around the country a lot of ideas going around about what's the ideal time whether it's uh in terms of comparing to when the tree is about to start growing, you know, do we do it before that, close to before that, mm -hmm, right at right. that time when we see visible growth, or do we uh, make sure the tree is active before we start doing that? And I've heard the most interesting reasons, I'll say, as to why we might choose one or the other. And I'm curious if you all have heard or 
any of that from anyone lately. No. <laughs> Enlighten us, John. Yeah, uh, please. Well, it's ideas about if uh, trees are storing resources in the roots, do you wait for them to kind of shuttle those resources out of the roots before you repot? Mm. That's the hypothesis uh -huh. I've heard. Um, and I'm very curious what uh, roots are coming off when you're repotting and what resources are stored in which roots. Um, the way I do it's been pretty consistent yeah. in that it's funny, you learn a lot of stuff living in a mild climate because some trees, the roots <laughs> will grow all winter long. Right. Mm -hmm. And this is temperate species. Like often pines will show fresh roots every day of the year down yeah, here in the yeah, area. Yeah. And what I don't like about waiting for the trees to be active is that if in general, at least where I live, the roots are almost always moving before the top of the tree moves. Mm -hmm. And so if I wait until I see visible yep. growth, that means yep. when I open it up, there's going to be a whole bunch of new root. And I just cannot think of a hypothesis why I would ever want a tree. I can't, mm -hmm. I can't say to a tree with a straight face, please develop <laughs> a bunch of new roots so I can cut them off so you can do it again a second time in a new soil. You know, I always want to throw good after good where the I, I trim the roots right before they start growing so that we're throwing good after good. And when the tree becomes active and throws those new roots, it goes straight into the new soil. That's mm -hmm. how I've always thought of it. And I would just, yeah, and I would love make, to know yeah, if you can think of any great. kind of contra way of doing it. That no, I like that. Yeah. Repotting a little early. So you're not cutting off all kinds of new growth down there. Uh, makes makes sense. Um, it, you know, just just to back up and and talk about where the plant stores its sugars, or at, in the winter mm -hmm. it's starch, and then in the spring it turns that into sugar. But it's in the wood, and and wood is everywhere, right? It's up yeah. in, in the trunk, it's in the branches, it's also in the large roots. Um, but large roots, as far exactly. as far as I know, it's not in the small roots. So I think yeah. you could repot. Uh, you know, you're cutting off mostly, you know, just several year old roots, which aren't going to store a lot, I don't believe. So uh, because it, as I understand it, your starches are stored in the ray cells and the ray cells are like these transverse elements mm. um, that, that go perpendicular to your rings. So, um, and that's going to be in just, that's going to be in chunky stuff. So I, I, yeah, repot just a little earlier and then keep your tree a little warmer after that to help it push it into in, into growth I'm, I'm with you Jonas I think I think cutting off all the new growth maybe isn't great um uh there, you know there are some some trees that uh they don't seem to respond well you know after they're really really pushing anyway you know after after the growth on top is going as as you're saying the roots start first and and then you see the growth on top is usually what happens um uh, I mean, I, th I think the uh, the old gardener um, uh, uh, suggestion of repotting when you see bud swell um, is probably a, a, a good guideline. Um, there are some um, some trees like beech, if they've fully leafed out and you do a really aggressive potting, or not fully leafed out, but if you have shoots coming out, that that might not be great. Whereas trident maple, sometimes they repot when the, the, the trees have little shoots on them already and tiny leaves to slow the tree down because they're so strong. You might do that with an armor maple or something else. It's just a really, really strong tree. So that's a little bit of finessing mm -hmm. um, and, and getting beyond uh, uh, where, where we started with this conversation. <laughs> well, and that's so there's another really interesting way of looking at that, which is 
um, one of the funnier things that Daisaku told me is, oh, you can rip pot pine any day of the year. It's just how much, how aggressive can yeah, you yeah. be with the root work and how stressed do you want the tree to be? Yeah, yeah. Right. And so if we know right, right. that, repotting a tree aggressively in the middle of summer when the tree has the greatest need for transpiration in other words the heaviest reliance on the roots and we assume that's going to be the most stressful thing you can do and if right. the least stressful thing is doing it right as it's waking up are we right. thinking that it's an even curve in there or is there some magic <laughs> bubble that's outside of that curve because yeah. that's what it would take yeah. if we believe that we want the tree that's to be at a different point, we're just believing there's some physiological anomaly in this curve of, we know this is more stressful, less, 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 this is not at all, but there's a magic bump that we're trying to time. And it, I have no idea if that bump is there or not, but that's kind of what that hypothesis relies on. I think I think it's fascinating. I mean, Daichan is right. You really can. Uh, you, you can do anything almost any time. Yeah. But I don't encourage but, yeah. people to do that for a whole bunch of different reasons. Uh, for one, if you're working with an old tree, yep. uh, 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 certainly the, the energy in the spring when it's naturally going to start growing is a great time to regrow your roots. It's a great time to repot. On the other hand, there's lots of other sub themes going on here after growth ends in late spring can be a fairly good time to repot if if it's essential it's a, if it's necessary there's and it's some a gentle like, repot. Uh, yeah i translated an article years ago i think you wrote something about this uh, uh about um repotting chochibai in the summertime after yeah. they've they've flushed out and i'd never heard of that until i translated this article i was like oh my gosh that's a neat idea so i've been doing that for a, for a while it, it works uh it defoliate and you cut back and yeah. whatnot but uh but it can work uh it can actually work really well in five days i see new buds coming on <laughs> crazy yeah. crazy little plants but then there are the collectors you talk with people who are collecting um in the mountains and and uh, after the the needles have grown out and and so all the growth has happened and you collect the tree and it explodes with roots once you get it in a pot um the heat of the summer can help so if you're going to repot out of season you got to control your environment really really well i think is 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 you know greenhouse or something the other funny thing i found is uh, after hearing that advice i very cheekily thought oh well then it should be totally safe to repot after decandling and as always, it's not a test if you use a little baby tree because they can do whatever they want. So I took a 13-year-old, <laughs> my very favorite 13-year-old pine that I'd grown mm. from seed. Uh, like it was a really nice tree. Uh, decandled it and did a fairly aggressive repot in mm. late June, early July. I think the tree did better as a result of that. Oh, wow. Interesting. Whoa. Yeah. Right. Did just fine. Now, I will say as a caveat to all listeners, yeah. I recommend yeah, that yeah, to nobody. Yeah. But... <laughs> It's not impossible. Interesting. And interesting. so I don't know why there'd be a case when you'd ever want to do that. But it was interesting to know that a young tree that was really healthy, that was just overflowing mm -hmm. with good resources, had been fertilized heavily, mm -hmm. uh, good aftercare, which we'll talk more about too. But that, that one really cracked yeah. me up when I saw. In fact, mm -hmm. after seeing how bad the roots looked when I repotted it, it, they weren't as good as I thought. Even though I'd grown the tree from seed and it had never been in bad soil, Huh. Um, it was an exposed root and there was a lot of these big aggregate things down at the bottom at the very core of the root base hmm. by tickling some of that out and getting some good soil down there. I essentially made the pot bigger because whenever you replace bad soil with good, it's like hmm. a bigger pot within the same space requirements and the tree seemed to love it. Oh, that's, Bonkers. That's a great story.
Interesting. <laughs> all all so, I have is jokes. Uh, so California allows you to tickle the soil out. Is that what you just said? Oh, it's recommended. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, they don't let us do that in Oregon. Most people, well, in Oregon, it's there's more teasing. I think it's okay, more yeah, nuanced teasing. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> here, it's uh, it's more of a tickle. Okay. Uh, yeah. Wow. All right. I like it. Which, and so which, I, which brings us yeah. which brings us to uh, chopsticking. Oh, all right. <laughs> we're we're weaving stabbing. back and forth here. We didn't cover that when we were talking about soils. But one thing I've noticed, I just want to throw this out there. One thing I've noticed is that um, uh, it's very exciting for people, I think, to kind of wiggle around. You stick your chopstick in the <laughs> soil and you, and you make this circle, right? And you kind of wiggle it around. You go back and forth. And, um, and that's helpful. <laughs> but I do think the poke is... is uh, is as important, if not more important, because when you poke it into the soil, the chopstick, the sharpened chopstick that you have, or whittled piece of bamboo, whatever you've got, uh, you poke it in there and you will, that's how you discover a hole. It goes in easy, you got a hole. It goes in, it doesn't go in very well, it's compacted in there, so you move on. So there's no point wiggling where it's compacted. So first is the poke, where, where you discover very little resistance, then you can do a little wiggle because that'll settle it in. Um, and in a really tight spot, a wiggle isn't going to help you, but the poke will. That that will push soil down into a space that's not much bigger than a particle of soil. So anyway, I just want to throw that out there. I saw I see a lot of students doing this, and um, it's uh, uh, one of the comments that we uh, that we make with a, a well. Switch. And a lot of people describe them as equivalent alternatives, as if there's as if a technique yeah. is this abstract thing that has no effect on the physical world. And so if you kind of step back as you described and think. As you wiggle, what you're saying is that toward the bottom of that chopstick, depending on where the like the center of the radius of that wiggle happens to lie, how far away from the tip of it, then you start thinking, if the fixed point of the chopstick is the tip, then everything out near the surface is going to be moving back and forth and it can't possibly get compacted. If, you're have, if however, you're pivoting your wiggle, say an inch or two away from the tip, then you've got a fixed point somewhere in the middle of the chopstick and you're just waving it back and forth at the end of the chopstick. Now, if we were to build a case for when that might work, say there's a gap between two roots in a big pocket underneath, there might be a case for some wiggle to make sure it's compacted within that chasm. And so I, I'm kind of with you. I, I do it. at I least 90, 95% the poking, but I will yeah. say that there are cases when some wiggle can uh, help out but can. i'd say yeah. if people are kind of conscious about what physically is happening and if you're just waving something back and forth that can't possibly make something compact you're whipping it up right. and the more whipping of the soil you do you're just letting the smaller heavier particles sink to the bottom and the lighter stuff go up to the top oh, yeah right now Right now. Another thing I see people doing is, is banging the pot. Um, and that's also a useful technique. Um, yeah. banging, like if you have it on a turntable, you take your mallet and you hit the bottom of the turntable uh, rather than like hitting an expensive pot with a mallet. Or oh, fist. I haven't tried the turntable not a good idea. But yeah, <laughs> yeah just helps. but I think of it more like, you know, like finishing salt. This is, you know, just banging isn't going to settle your soil enough. Your If you have pockets, they're still going to be there. Um, you, uh, especially if you got some roots hanging out. Um, so what the, banging uh, the bang does is, is the last you, thing. Yeah. And that's yeah, when yeah, you've got the thing. areas that you didn't chopstick because there's no roots there. It's if you've got large areas of soil where you didn't do any chopsticking, it will settle that stuff, but you're right. It's not going to solve a pocket. 
I'm still I struck saw, by I that. I saw that. one time on, a, I think it was a YouTube, uh, someone had, uh, they have these jiggler tables for concrete to get the air out of the concrete. It's like oh. an offset. And yeah, so I vibrate, saw someone, oh a vibrator. Yeah. I saw someone <laughs> using a, that for a, a repotting to, yeah. to, to jiggle the grains down into the root system. <laughs> and people regularly recommend a vibratory plate, something to just settle it all. And it, uh, yeah, I don't, I, I would not want my soil to experience that, but <laughs> Uh, because actually having used those vibrators in doing uh, cement pours, knowing what happens if you overdo it, you completely yeah. destroy the integrity of your concrete. All the aggregate mm. just drops to the bottom in a matter of seconds. And so it's a very, it's a very careful thing, even with uh, concrete. Right. But right. I was still struck by uh, Andrew's story, the pocket under that imported tree. It's just, That's just scary. because you've got a good tree doesn't mean it was handled the way you would want it handled. Mm. And just because it's someone's business to handle or to import really nice trees doesn't mean that they're going to be the way you want them to be. Because I've mm -hmm. actually found a lot of the worst sins and mm -hmm. big air pockets under the trunks about as bad as it absolutely gets. Uh, I've, I've seen that same thing. It's creepy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that can that can make your tree wilt. Uh, if it's a big enough pocket. Uh, I remember repotting a, a boxwood uh, years ago back in Arizona, and I just watched it as the leaves kind of lost their luster and i was like what happened there and i took it out and i had mm. i had done a horrible job <laughs> there was this big pocket and then there was dry roots everywhere and it was just hanging on i'm sure it would have died if i hadn't uh, uh repotted Good it catch. the second time <laughs> you know speaking along the lines of chopsticking this year i've, I've been um I, i'm working on a lot of young plants both at some clients houses and and here in my garden and I'm, I'm using, uh, because they're all deciduous and, and they're so shallow of a root mass, I'm using the pressure of a hose to, to push soil in. Um, and because we're doing so many of these, we're doing batches of 50 or, or so. Uh, so using pressure of the hose to, to, to get, get the soil into the, the, the roots that have, have been you know, bare rooted uh, has been helping and, and saving a lot of time. Um, so that's Say a really more about how technique. you're doing that. That's like while you're potting it, yeah, I, I'm basically just, you know, taking this, this young seedling um, that has these nice horizontal roots, I'm putting it back in the container, I'm putting a little mound of soil on it and taking it to the hose and I'm just using the pressure of the hose to wash soil into the, oh, into the roots. Um, it saves me a ton of time and I, I've done a few, you know, not autopsies, but, you know, dissections, I guess, to see, you know, is this actually working and it, it works really, really, really well. Uh, especially yeah. if you if you're using like a geodisc or, or a tile or something underneath there so ah. there's a hard surface for there that water to kind of stop and that soil to kind of stop um, oh, interesting. It's, it's been working really well i wonder yeah, i do something similar cool. and i think i think the mm -hmm. it's the same as the vibrating yeah. table like if you do it too much then the particle will the sizes will separate or the bark will float or the pump oh. whatever and so yeah it's kind of this fine line mm -hmm. between we yeah. want we want to use the the we want to turn the soil to liquid enough mm -hmm. to get in between the roots but we don't want to do it so much that we're you know um, separating particle size and stuff because yeah for little like one year mm -hmm. seedlings that it's similar it works pretty well um you, you guys are doing some fun stuff i i had never thought of doing that with young seedlings and i don't know andrew if maybe, maybe you got that idea from uh yeah, the story or, or, i told to do the, uh, yeah with the so, yamadori right yeah so suzuki got three pines i think they were imported from um 
uh, from Korea. They were uh, Korean uh, uh, red pines and they were gorgeous old trees and they had bare rooted them. Um, not a speck of soil on them, they had these bright uh, orange roots. It was really something. And we, uh, this is one of these things, kind of like what Jonas just said about his decandled uh, black pine that he repotted. I don't really recommend this, but it was, it's something to keep in your, in the back of your mind. It's a really interesting idea. Uh, so these were old trees, not, not a speck of soil on them. Um, and uh, we took uh, just pumice, uh, so that might mitigate some of the uh, the the thought problems that that um, uh, that John raised of of sort of stratification. So it was pumice all of the same size, um, and we had a chopstick in one hand, a hose in the other, and actually a third person with like a scoop full of of pumice, and it, it, dropping the pumice in, and then the hose on it, and then wiggling the the chopstick, <laughs> and the hose was pretty strong. It was a strong uh, blast, not not full on. It was kind of like half amount of water, but but strongly uh, 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 flowing. Um, and uh, it was incredible. It's very, very gentle. I mean, if you think about it, you're not, you're not pounding away with a chopstick and doing all of this kind of aggressive, abrasive thing that, that, um, that pumice can do. It, the water was just very gently uh, organizing uh, all, all between, between the roots. And if you think of it, it makes a lot of sense, but it's the complete opposite of the way we normally work. <laughs> um, and so I didn't know what was going on. I mean, my eyes were huge that day. I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> this is really bizarre. Uh, they all lived. They, they did fine. They, they were in a greenhouse. We missed them every day. And, and they, they I'm going to get a snorkel and try that. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. It's wet, it's wet and you're doing it, you know, in cold weather. So yeah, you, you're <laughs> miserable if you're not if you're not in the wetsuit. <laughs> well, that brought up a whole a couple different things. That's super cool. I'm going to try something like that, Andrew. I kind of like that idea because especially with young stuff, it's more of a nursery practice thing. You just, what's the fastest, most effective way to get right, to number right. 100? Um, but I'm curious, when do you guys get out the hose when you have older trees? Uh, when do you wash away? Or are there is there any role for a hose when you're repotting a more mature tree when, in terms of washing the roots? I, I, hardly, I hardly use it at all. Um, I, I, I'm only using it if I'm doing a, a partial bare root and I'm really cautious to, to only, you know, get the half that I'm, I'm trying to tackle. But, but for a really old uh, bonsai, I, I'm really cautious to not wash any soil away. I'll wash the soil away depending on the kind of the soil. When you get the kind of 100% clay that's uh, field soil, and it's just so gunked up and the tree and the roots might be a little wet to start with. You can't physically remove that stuff. As long as I know I'm not gonna be washing everything away from the whole root ball, I will use the water. And I found two good things about it. One is it lets you see what's going on because you're getting rid of that kind of veneer of the thin clay particles that are stuck onto the roots and it can help clear out some of those areas. But the other thing it does is it can let you know where specifically there are drainage problems in a root ball. And I found I've repotted a bunch of really large forests lately, uh, group plantings, deciduous, and they had this crazy 100% broken down field soil in the middle. And after doing the root work with various picks, hooks, sticks, 
it looked like it was good. And then when I kind of just gave it the smallest rinse to see what the roots actually looked like, I found there were these pools of water. After two hours of root work, there were still pools of water. And I would not have known that without the hose. And so I'm like, okay, guess I'm gonna have to perforate every centimeter of this whole thing. And I went back and cleaned it all up. And I found that's the most useful thing. But in general, you're right. I don't touch the hose that much, but when I'm dealing with an old complicated root system with lots of large overlapping things and really bad field soil, and I'm not bare rooting, then it's a great situation for the hose. I'm just finding that a lot this year. Yeah. 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 We tend not to use the hose too much either. Um, With a really young maple, maybe if you're trying to organize the roots or something like that, a vigorous plant, but usually, you know, we really, I'm, I'm, I'm always kind of leery about hoses. Um, If, if an area is where where you see roots that are blackened, that's, that's root rot. That's when they're dead and, and, and then cutting away and then washing that little area, not the whole root ball, but that, that tends to help. But one of the, one of the um, reservations I have with a a lot of water uh, blasting uh, away, do, doing that too frequently um, with uh, as something that uh, rather than using hooks and, and and chopsticks and all that. The problem is that it is that it it um, is is then the second part, which is putting it back in the pot. <laughs> um, is that then you have this wet root ball, and unless you've let it drain, maybe tamped it off with a towel or something like that, you have this water there, and um, uh, these droplets that then will glom onto some soil that you put in there. And it can be a really easy way to create pockets, which if you're using dry soil and a, a drier root ball, uh, will easily flow in between and, and make it's just something to keep in mind if you do wash, if you do need to wash uh, to um, be a little cautious about. Yeah. And then the complexity of the root ball will have a big effect on that because if it's kind of a two-dimensional root ball where everything comes out at a level, you'll have clean soil below and clean soil above. There's not as much in between, but if you have a deeper, more complex root system, then there'd be all kinds of opportunities for pockets in there. And that's something I'd be much less likely to want to rinse off in the first place, probably. Right. Right. Good point. Right. right. So when in terms of the containers you're using, how do you describe Mm. when a box is good versus a terracotta pot versus a bonsai pot mm. mm-hmm. what, like how do you describe it yeah i think just for terms of deciduous i think a box is always good i think it, it works great for an old tree it works great for a young tree um, especially if the, the old bonsai is, is weak it starts shedding some branches a box is really really effective to to, to reinvigorate it um, but when i look at you know photographs from um, ebihara's garden oishi's garden you know they I, I see both really young bonsai boxes, really old bonsai boxes, everything in between. Uh, so I think it's it's always a good idea, especially um, lately. I'm finding I, I much prefer a box rather than a, a pot that might not necessarily be the best choice um, aesthetically. Um, Absolutely, so putting it into a box <laughs> until you can find that perfect container. Absolutely. Um, Otherwise, your visitor will be like, "What were you thinking?" Gosh, that's yeah, just, yeah. Uh, they so never think that de- about a box. <laughs> so, yeah. how do you describe the benefits of box? I think the biggest benefit of the box is is you, you have a you're not you don't necessarily have bigger soil mass because we usually build them to be the same size or same ish size uh-huh. that the pot would be. But I think there's a much faster wet dry uh, cycle. And when the plant can dry out faster, when it can get rehydrated appropriately, that that faster wet dry cycle really produces much more rapid plant growth. Is that because Um, of the wood holding less moisture? I'm not entirely sure. I think it's because, yeah, the wood holds less moisture. We have boxes typically have much better drainage 
Um, so, so the I drainage is good. Those That's one benefit. Because I was trying to think of that if we were to enumerate the actual differences between a bonsai pot and a box, the biggest benefit of the box is you can make it the exact size you need it, which is just which mm -hmm. can be really handy. But that's yeah. a minor thing in the big picture because you might have a pot that's the perfect, slightly oversized. You can get more drainage in it, which you can kind of fake with terracotta or ceramic pots. But in general, mm -hmm. you can put tons of huge drainage holes in the bottom of the wood boxes, which is great. Mm -hmm. Now, in terms of the insulative capacity or the mm -hmm. fact that they can hold water, that's where it's like I it's harder to measure but I know that there's a lot of differences between those mm. things and mm. is it the fact that there's water in the container wall I mean there isn't mm. terracotta too if it's a, a terracotta mm. versus say a high fired pot mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I'm just curious what are like are there other magical properties of box beyond the size the convenience you know is it is there extra I can see Michael thinking <laughs> you know, I, I was thinking back on your on your comment, Jonas, about uh, um, not seeing you know really uh, really green uh, needles uh, using pure pumice and and in a box for whatever maybe it's just volume you know more roots whatever I get green needles and pure pumice <laughs> very very green uh, which is interesting to me it's uh, but and and maybe that's the you know the uh, helps support this engine that helps throw off diseases and allows us to build our trees faster and you know many of the other benefits that happen in a box but yeah there's a little bit of magic there I guess <laughs> maybe, there's, maybe there's some real because questions. we can quantify the differences in terms of like right. which one right. uh, dries out more because what's interesting Andrew what you're right. saying about the dry out cycle I'm a huge fan of letting trees dry out more and letting them get drier than people think before you water again Ooh, which gets to probably my last question but <laughs> you also having those shallower um, boxes is a smaller water column, which means there's actually a higher percentage of water in that shallow container than there would be in a deeper container. Right. Like yeah, I think I think the is. I think the caveat with the boxes that I'm building though is I'm I'm not putting just a few holes. I, I'm putting you know twenty or thirty holes into each box. Oh yeah. Uh, actually, enough so that I don't have to use any drainage screen. I make my holes small enough so that my largest mm -hmm. my drainage particle can't go through it. Yeah. Um, is just kind of a cost saving mechanism, but also yeah, I think, cheap. you know, yeah, I think having, you know, 30 small little drainage holes means that there's water that's not really pooling up anywhere. Um, unlike a shallow pot where you're going to have, you know, it'll drain out really well where you have the holes, but there's big gaps where you don't have drainage holes. And I think water can really tend to collect in those areas. Yeah. And so let's say we've got an old root ball and half the soil's crap and half the soil's great. How do you tell people to water that? Because that's one of the most common questions I get. <laughs> well, do I keep that old soil in the middle healthy right. or do I keep all that stuff on the outside healthy? And I usually just say, well, which roots do you want to live? Yes. <laughs> a, yeah. 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 That's pretty much uh, my angle too. I say water for the, the, the soil you want. And the rest just kind of magically takes care of itself. It's yeah. funny because it's one of those things where there's not going to be a logical answer for it, but you yeah. still have to make decisions when you're holding the hose, whether right. or not you're going right. to wet or dryer. <laughs> I mean, yeah. one thing also on the box is that we'll sometimes change the soil composition for the outside of the box, the edge, uh, when we go into a box just to kind of help invigorate the tree. So that's another, I mean, you could also do that in a, in a pot, but... Uh, you know, a box, we can, we can add a different soil composition 
And then you, it just kind of reminds us to take the soil composition back down to the core when we go back into a pot, you know, so we can, we can play with that a little bit more, I think in a box than you could in a, in a bonsai mm, pot. Yeah. yeah. And to Andrew's point of the, the turnover, the fast wet dry cycle, um, I, th I think uh, minimizing your box because any box is going to probably have a lot of, you know, it's going to have a lot, a lot of moisture, or excuse me, not a lot of moisture, but a lot of volume. Um, it's, it's very common to oversize the box. Um, and, and, and to keep it just sort of that it's, you know, an inch and a half in, in all dimensions larger that that's usually more than enough. Um, yeah. I think my favorite pots of all time were, uh, if I'm recalling this right at, uh, Ebihara's garden where, the trees were just oh, yes. on asphalt <laughs> and it looked like there was a ring of drainage mesh and then the soil just poured in and like that was it. That's that's even simpler than Andrew's, you know, drill from the bottom, which is a great minimalization. I like that. But those are hilarious. All I've seen are the photographs, but they make me laugh every time. Yeah, because the water's going to drain out the side. It's not going to, you know, pool too much right there. But the but thing is crazy. So I mean, cool. asphalt is oil, you know, it's... <laughs> Yeah, it weathered asphalt. Me. You know? But then yeah. you see these huge, you know, <laughs> right? These are extensions going off the top. You, you know, it. this is great because the county is actually making me pave a driveway here in my new house, <laughs> and so now I'm going to have this asphalt driveway. So now I know exactly what I need to, to do with it. <laughs> Just let the tar and everything, let all the petrochemicals gas yeah, off. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You could probably oh, put man. divots in the driveway where you have little like potholes, you know. Oh, very good. Yeah, nice, nice. <laughs> I like it. So we got a lot of good options. Well, I think now I'm armed to uh, start facing the daunting task of the hundreds of small young yes. trees and uh, everything else. Um, we didn't even get to really in detail the containers. I know I have so many different kinds of containers I'm using as well this year for the young trees, whether small plastic pots, small plastic baskets. I might try some fabric containers um they're, they're let alone the discs that you mentioned earlier there's so many different uh things to go with in containers i'm trying as many as possible this year and you know, just keep the experiments going mm -hmm. very good report back please is, is anyone uh using any interesting uh containers for for older bonsai this year I've put 20 plus year old trees in colanders and don't really have any problem with that. It's kind of like the way a box is good for any old tree. Um, what I, I guess in all of these cases, if it's funny, when we have an older or weaker tree, we want that thing to dry out faster. That seems to be the number one important point. And there was, a, I was reading a great article from the nursery industry about this, where he was kind of joking he was and wasn't joking. He doesn't want to pay his employees to water the trees. He wants to pay his employees to ensure the trees reach a specified dry point between waterings. <laughs> Excellent. And it's just such a great way that's of perfect. thinking about it. And so when I think of the containers, I love the idea of any <laughs> container that's going to help the trees dry out enough. Because if most people repot too frequently, which is going to just really, really weaken the trees. Like if you see everything looks like it's done right and the tree's not growing, it's because almost always because too many roots were cut. And same thing in terms of watering, I, most people probably water, I'd guess, double what they could be, especially for their conifers and to some degree, even the deciduous. 
to some degree. Yeah. yeah. And I, I would add to that oversizing containers is a, is a big problem. If they don't go too yeah. small, it's, it's too big and then the tree can't dry out. And then, then you end up with a physiological slowdown. Yeah. It mm -hmm. just goes mm -hmm. slower. And so, uh, mm -hmm. no, what about you, Andrew? Have you thought of any uh, creative containers this year? No, I, I'm, I, as Michael and John know, uh, all too well. I, I've spent the last couple of years just hoarding a really simple, basic glazed containers. I, I was living in a, you know, 10 by 10 foot room and I had, you know, 75, 20 inch plus box <laughs> you know, in this room underneath the bed, you know, it's stacked up on the sides. Uh, so I, I'm still working my way through those, but I, I, I'd like to experiment with some more kind of avant-garde things. So maybe in yeah. the future. Great. Yeah, I want to see more cement pots. I want to see more big pots. We just need all kinds of containers. I'm finding now it's really mm -hmm. hard to find exactly the container you need. And so the most creative things I'm doing are I've yet to start uh, using cutting boards. I'm sure that's right around the corner. But uh, I'm kind of ignoring, I'm kind of thinking as the pots as a platform, if I don't have the right pot, and I'll mound things up as high as possible. I've been rebuilding a number of forests lately where I take them apart and put them back together. And if I don't these trees were not treated to the root work they could have received over the years. And so I'm often mounting them up three, four inches above the edge of the very shallow pot and just trying to get more and more creative with how I'm incorporating long grain sphagnum moss to keep it all from pouring off the sides and or treating it with real moss on the outside. So I'm getting much more creative in how I'm useful. using these things, but that's more resourcefulness than true creative new directions. <laughs> like how do i make this thing work right right the mother of invention yes. well i'm glad you all had the time to talk yeah. things related to repotting today thank you john for uh encouraging nice. us in this vein yeah absolutely yeah it was a great subject yeah it was fun timely and as always i think it uh brought up more questions than it did answer so we've got a few more things to mull about yes over apologies the next to our listeners and I can think of so many products that'll love to sponsor this episode, John. Yeah. Yes, oh, exactly. wonderful. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we, we look forward to that. <laughs> all right. Alrighty. Thank you all. We'll talk to you all later. Okay, Cheers all. Great. Bye. Bye. The music on today's podcast was brought to you by the fine folks at Blue Dot Sessions. Check them out at www.sessions.blue. Also, the advertisements are fake. Good morning, Andrew. Morning. Can you guys hear me? Yeah. Great. Echo, echo, echo. Is there yeah. an echo in here?